Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30 says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's the, the, uh, the reference there to flesh and bone. And you see it in verse 31. It says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and, they shall be, and he shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That's a, that's a quote. Verse 31 is a quote back to uh, Genesis at the very first marriage where, where Adam and Eve are joined in marriage. And Adam says, This is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Uh, she should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And, he's, and then he uh, says the verse that's quoted there in verse 31 about a man leaving his father and his mother. And the, you know, that, that becoming one flesh was, a, was something that was set down right there uh, from, the, from the creation for man and woman in marriage. But you see, now, now that we know what Christ has accomplished and we know who we are in Christ, there's even an additional significance to that. Because we are made members of Christ's body. When a person believes the gospel, they are so joined to Christ that they become a member of his body. And here it says, of his flesh and of his bones. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting expression. This is kind of, kind of an aside from our topic. But, you know, when we talk about, for instance, people being close or being family, we say they're flesh and blood. Uh, you notice it doesn't say flesh and blood there. It says flesh and, and bones. And you know that, that Christ, after his, uh, after his death, but especially after his resurrection, it doesn't, it doesn't refer to, you know, when it's talking about his person and, and, you know, who he is now, it doesn't talk about his flesh and blood. It talks about his flesh and bones because his blood was shed, see? His blood was shed there at, at Calvary and, Christ, and the body that Christ is in today. You know, Christ, the, the, Christ rose bodily from the grave. The, the physical body that he inhabited on this earth was changed, much in the way that our bodies will be changed at the rapture. His body was changed, and he is still in that body today. It's a glorified body, but realize it's not a flesh and blood body, it's a flesh and bone body. And we are members of his flesh and his bones. Um, and, and verse 32, verse 32 says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And the word mystery, as we've studied before, the word mystery is something that was previously kept secret. Now it's revealed. He's not talking about marriage being a mystery. He's not talking about husband and wife becoming one flesh being a mystery. That, that had been revealed all along. He's talking about Christ and the church and how the church become members of Christ's body. That that was a mystery. That's something not known uh, in the Old Testament, in fact, you won't find that teaching anywhere except in Paul's epistles. You don't even find it in, in uh, Peter's epistles or, or James or any of them. You find it only in Paul's epistles, the idea that believers would become members of Christ's body. That's the, the mystery that he's referring to. Now, verse 33, um, verse 33 sort of sums up what he's taught here regarding husbands and wives. 
And in doing that, it also reveals an important truth. You know that God has made men and women different. I know that people today want to try and talk about equality. When you say two things are equal, you mean they're, they're interchangeable, right? If you're in a, a mathematical formula and you say X equals 2, anywhere in that formula where you find an X, you can replace a 2 because they're equal, they're interchangeable. And I'm going to tell you that, that men and women are not equal. Men and women are not biologically equal, right? Women can have babies, men don't have babies. Um, they're not biologically equal. They're, you know, when people talk about that equality, they're talking about a, an equality of, you know, in the sense that, that uh, men should not be superior to women and that kind of thing. And, and that's true. You know, you realize that we're equal before God in the sense that we're all, we're all sinners in need of his grace. But what's happened is there's been a distortion of that idea to the idea that men and women are exactly equal. And you see the fruits of it. You see the fruits of it in these battles over, over uh, marriage and the definition of marriage. Realize that's rooted in the idea that men and women are equal. If men and women are equal, then it should be no different for a man to marry a man than for a man to marry a woman, right? And, and so much of what's been, been uh, done in the name of equality, it hasn't been you have this, this, this feminist movement that is not about feminism at all. The feminist movement is not about feminism. The feminist movement is about masculinism. It's about making women like men. You know, go back and, and read, uh, especially some of the, the early writings in that feminist movement, go back in, you know, the 50s and the 60s, and they're talking about how women need to become more like men. The, you, you see a failure of that, and you see today uh, many women who are, are uh, you know, they've, They've been pushed that idea that they have to be just like men and they're starting to get, you know, on, on into life and get toward the end of childbearing years and they feel a, an emptiness there in their life. They feel like they've, they've uh, done all kinds of great things and, and, you know, been a success in the business world and, and that kind of thing, but there's sort of a natural emptiness there. And that's because God has made men and women different. Women are much more relational by nature you know, where men, men are much more antisocial by nature. Uh, there's, there's differences. And that's not to say that that's true of every individual, but it's true as a, as a rule, as a general rule. And God has created men and women to complement one another. You know, you take two people that are exactly the same and try and put them together and get them to accomplish anything, and it doesn't work very well. Because if they're, vo if they're both very passive, they aren't going to get anything done. If they're both very aggressive, they're going to wind up fighting with each other all the time. Uh, you know, you take, take two, I mean, imagine if you had to work with somebody that was exactly like you, uh, how, how much you'd get done. It wouldn't be very much. You might like to think it would be, but it wouldn't be. Um, and men and women are different, and men and women need different things from one another in marriage. What, I, what a husband needs from his wife is different than what a wife needs from her husband. And here in verse 33... It says, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. The, the thing that a wife needs from her husband above anything else is love. She needs that love. Men don't necessarily have that same kind of need. And you see what it says regarding the wife. It says, and the wife see that she reverence her husband.
What a husband needs more than anything else from his wife is respect, you see. And those two things complement one another. In fact, they, they tend to reinforce one another. Uh, often a, a man who may not have a great deal of respect for his wife in response, or may not have a great deal of love for his wife, let me say, uh, in response to the, the reverence that she gives to him, he can become more loving. And likewise, uh, in, a, in a situation where a wife doesn't have a great deal of reverence for her husband, she can become that way in response to him loving her, in the same way that the, the church becomes more subject to Christ in response to his love. The love of Christ constraineth us, you see. And th- th- so that verse really sums up the, the major need of the man and wife in marriage. And, you know, if you take most problems that come up in marriage, most problems that come up will relate to one of those two things, either the wife not properly reverencing her husband or the husband not properly loving his wife. And, and realize, you know, what, what some people do um, is, you know, you, you very quickly in marriage, you get into a pattern. There's patterns that are set down in the first year of, of marriage or so that kind of continue on, and it, and it becomes very hard to break out of those patterns. And so a lot of times people kind of, you know, they aren't really happy, but it's tolerable. They can tolerate the way things are in their marriage, and they'd rather just tolerate it the way it is and, than try to change something and, and uh, take the risk of that not working out. But I hope you realize when you read a passage like this that, marriage and how things ought to operate in marriage goes far beyond just what is tolerable and what works for, for me, uh, you know, and what, is, what, I can, what I can put up with and, and uh, make work. But rather, God has a design in marriage for it to reflect who he is and who Christ is and the love that Christ had for the church. And so we have a, we have a duty in marriage not just to do what works, not just to do what what whatever pattern we've fallen into, but to always be striving to reach for that goal of what's presented there in, in that passage in Ephesians 5. And it's, you know, you realize we're going we're gonna to fall short. Uh, husbands are going to fall short. Wives are going to fall short. But also realize that how God sees you, as defined in that passage, is he sees you as without spot and blemish. He sees you as, as holy and set apart to him. And when you realize that and really understand who you are in Christ, that gives you a, a confidence and that gives you an ability to reflect these things. Okay? Now, as we've come down through these verses, you know, you, you read these things about what the, the ideal standard is. And that's what the verses are describing is that perfect standard, the perfect standard for marriage is that picture between Christ and the church. But we know that in this world we live in, things are not perfect, right? And we know that we do not measure up to this standard. Now, nevertheless, that is the standard. You know, there seems to be this this tendency today that when people can't measure up to the standard, then we just lower the standard, right? 
um, they, I remember several years ago they were talking about in, in the schools and there was, uh, you know, the, the reading levels, you know, and they have what a, what a fifth grader is supposed to read at and what an eighth grader is supposed to read at and that kind of thing. And there were so many kids in, in some schools that were behind that standard where they should have been, they were talking about lowering the standard. Well, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a backward way to do it, and certainly don't do that with the things of God's Word. Um, God sets a perfect standard. He doesn't set a, a, an attainable standard in our flesh. He sets a perfect standard because the standard reflects who He is. And the only way that, that we you know, even, even come close to that standard is by relying on God. We aren't going to do it in ourselves. All right, but often what happens in in many marriages is that you know if you if you have a marriage where both the husband and the wife realize you know these principles laid out in these verses and they even though they don't attain to the standards they they acknowledge that as the standard and they're seeking to to have the Lord glorified in their marriage uh, there's still going to be problems that come up but. But those problems, you know, you can deal with those things based on verses like these that we've been looking at. Although uh, there are often times, though, where one person maybe is more committed to that than the other one is. And so questions come up. Um, questions come up, for instance, when this talks about a, a wife submitting to her husband and, and submitting unto him as unto the Lord... Well, what about if the husband is an unbeliever? Or what about if the husband is a, is a believer but, is, you know, just, just doesn't care about these things or, or whatever? Um, what about in that case? Does that, does that remove that wife's responsibility? Uh, you know, what, what, about, what if it's the other way around? What if the husband is, is a dedicated believer and the, and the wife is not? And, you know, does that remove his responsibility as a husband. And so today we want to look at a, a few verses. We're going to leave Ephesians 5 here. You don't need to keep a, keep a marker there or anything. And we're going to look at some other verses that deal with some of those situations. And the first place that I want you to go is to 1 Peter chapter 3. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. There's, there's a couple of things to understand uh, about, about these things. One is that we often, we often think in terms of how we can get somebody else to do what they're supposed to do, right? Don't, don't we do that a lot? We see somebody and, you know, we, we know what they're doing is wrong and we think, how, how, what can I do to get them to do what's right? And the truth is you cannot get somebody to do what's right. Um, you know, you may, you may be able to play a part in encouraging them with things from God's Word and, and that kind of thing, but there is nothing you can do to make somebody follow God's Word. You can't, you can't do it. And we'd be much better off if we'd just get that idea out of our heads of how we're going to... to some, because then what we wind up doing, you know, we have a good goal in mind, right? We have a good goal in mind, but we wind up doing, you know, all kinds of manipulative type things to try and get somebody to do what's right. And you know that you cannot, you cannot take the place of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Certainly not your spouse's life. The Holy Spirit has a job to convict people and do those kinds of things. That You can't do that. You can't be the Holy Spirit for them. 
And if they, if they aren't responding to the things of God's word and that kind of thing, you certainly aren't going to um, be able to force them to change. And also when you consider, the here, here in 1 Peter 3, uh, you see it's going to begin by addressing the wives, right? And this is specifically going to address a situation where you have a, a faithful wife who has a husband who is disobedient to the word of God. And, you know, there's very often it seems that that's the case. There are many times where um, wives, you know, wives seem to, to have more of, a, more of an attraction oftentimes toward spiritual things just naturally than what their husbands do. Now, I, I hope that's not the case in your home and, you know, the part of the, the role of husband in being that leader is to be a spiritual leader and to, uh, you know, make, make spiritual decisions for that household and, and uh, that family and to teach his wife and family the things of the word of God. That's, that's part of that role of husband. But there are many times, and, and there are people that you know, and people that I know, and, and uh, couples that we know, where the husband is either an unbeliever or doesn't have a, a, you know, a great deal of interest in spiritual things, and the wife tends to, to take over that role as the spiritual leader. Now here in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now that's the same thing we saw over there in Ephesians 5, right? But now it says that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So it's, it's dealing with a situation where a husband does not obey the word. I, I remember uh, dealing with a, a couple one time. Uh, they were having some problems, and, and the wife was recalling a time in their marriage where she said she was, she was so happy because whenever her husband was doing something wrong, she could bring a Bible verse to him, and, and he would realize it was wrong, and he, and he would do what she wanted. And, and that, that was a time when she had been happy in their marriage, and she wondered why it wasn't still like that. And, you know, see, you see, the problem there was, partially there was a problem on the part of the husband that he was not being the spiritual leader. The wife was stepping in as the spiritual leader, and she liked it when she could use verses from the Bible to get him to do what she wanted him to do, right? And that lasted for a while, and pretty soon it didn't work anymore. It wore off, and... He wasn't going to submit to that. Really what was happening was he was submitting to her rather than her submitting to him. And again, you know, that kind of thing might, might work for a while. But again, you have to remember what, the mistake we often make in dealing with other people. And, and many of the mistakes that, that take place between husbands and wives is that husbands, on, on the one side, we assume that our wives think like us. And we assume that the kinds of things that we might respond to, that they'll respond to, and vice versa. Uh, the wives assume that, that their husbands think like them, and it doesn't work that way. And so often, what we wind up doing is actually the, the exact opposite of what we ought to be doing when it comes to, to uh, you know, dealing with these problems that, that come up. Um, in general, and again, you know, these things are, are in general, they're not true of every individual. But in general, men tend to be much more competitive than women do, right? It's very rare that you would ever have 
men, you know, playing a game or something and say, let's not keep score, right? Most men wouldn't do that. Now, women will do that. Women will will say, let's just play for fun. We won't keep score. Men don't do that. Um, The... A lot of times what happens in marriage is that a husband and wife get in competition with one another. And they begin competing, and, and what, what wives sometimes don't realize is most likely your husband is more competitive than you are. And so if you're going to try and compete with him, or if you're going to, you know, you're going to try and, try and, and get in that competitive type, type relationship, it's going to matter more to, the, to your husband to win probably than it does to you. Now, I'm not saying women don't compete, and women tend to compete in other things than what men do, but what happens is, when, when here it says, it says that if, if the husband doesn't obey the word, it doesn't say for the wife to go and quote scripture to him, right? In fact, it says do just the opposite, doesn't it? It says, if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. You see? And so there are times where a husband is in disobedience and his wife brings the scripture to him. And now he has, he has a choice. He can submit to her, right? Which is something that for many men is a, it just, it just offends uh, a man's nature oftentimes to do that, or he can try and resist it and, and compete against that and either either try and argue with with that verse or try and argue with you know what she's saying or, or defend himself and that kind of thing. Here, what it says to wives is that if the husband is, is not obeying the word, the thing for the wife to do is not to come and start lecturing him from Scripture. Now, it may be appropriate for another man to come and do that. It may be appropriate for, for you know, somebody from the church, an elder in the church, to do that. And that's a, that's a different situation. Men respond to, to men, to other men, in a different way than they do to women. Now, they, you know, you, it's not a guarantee that if another man does it, you're going to get a positive response. But you see what it says about what's going to win that man. It says that they, that they without the word may be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, conversation in the Bible does not mean what you say. You see, you can see it in this verse because it says, without the word, right? Conversation in the Bible is talking about behavior, and it's really talking about a lifestyle, okay? That's what conversation is. It's, it's more, I mean, it's, it kind of oversimplifies the word to say it just means behavior. It, it's really talking about a, a lifestyle that's based in a position that you have. Um, sometimes uh, when the word conversation is used, for instance, in, in Philippians, when it says our conversation is in heaven, uh, there uh, many times Bible commentators will say that it, it means citizenship, and that's, that's about right. But, it, but again, it's more than just citizenship. It's a lifestyle that's based in a position that you have. Okay, and and here when it's talking about the conversation of the wives, you see what kind of conversation, what kind of manner of life it's talking about while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. What, as that husband is able to see his wife doing the things that, that she ought to do from God's word, that has, that has an impact on him. Now again, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, wicked men out there with just completely hardened hearts that that won't respond to that. 
But, you know, again, uh, like I say, oftentimes we wind up doing the opposite things of what we ought to do. When, when you challenge most men, they're going to rise to that challenge and, and you know, try and defend themselves. But you ever see what happens with a, with a man? You can take a, a big, tough man, and you see him with a, a little kitten or something, something weak. And what do they do? They take care of it, and they nurture that thing, right? And so oftentimes what wives are trying to do is they're trying to, in some way, uh, you know, attack and overcome and overpower their husbands, to which he's going to respond by just hardening himself and stealing himself against it, where many times what the right thing to do is to do what these verses talk about, to be in subjection, to, to have that, not, not to try and be tough. Not to try and be tougher than he is and, and, you know, outplay him at his own game, but rather to allow yourself to be weak. And many times, a tough man will respond to something weak by being protective of it and caring of it and, and loving of it, right? And so it says there that that, uh, that man may be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now, the fear, there's fear that's mentioned in a couple of places here in this passage. And the fear there, again, it's not, it's not saying that you should be in just, just abject terror of your husband. That's not the kind of fear it's describing. It's describing the same kind of fear that we have as believers when we say we fear the Lord. Now, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear that when you go out of here today and, and if you mess up and do something wrong, that God is going to send a, send a lightning bolt down from heaven and strike you dead? I, I hope you don't fear that, because if you do fear that, you're not understanding the position you have under God's grace. Okay? Um, but yet, yeah, we, we fear the Lord. I hope you fear the Lord in the sense that you have a respect and uh, a just uh, the proper attitude toward who he is and, and what his power is and that kind of thing. Even the, even the judgment seat of Christ, you know, the judgment seat of Christ, we know that that doesn't have to do with whether we spend eternity in heaven or hell. Um, when, you know, when, when uh, believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's a judgment of rewards. And yet when Paul is, is describing it, um, back there in, in Corinthians, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. And there again, it's not a it's not a terror in that he's thinking the Lord's out to get him and he has to fear him in that sense, but it's a it's a you know a, a respect for that position of who the Lord is. And that's what it says there that it that's going to have more of an impact on a disobedient husband than to try and come and, and you know force him by by trying to become his teacher and his instructor in the things of the word of God. Um, when, I, when I said earlier that you cannot do anything to change somebody else, you can do something to change yourself. And what we do, as I've said all the way through on these passages about marriage, what we often do is we, we read these passages about marriage or we hear preaching on these passages about marriage, and rather than focusing on what we're supposed to do, what I'm supposed to do as a husband or what a, a wife is supposed to do as a wife, we focus on what the other person is supposed to do, and we treat it like a checklist and say they don't measure up, and we, we forget about 
what we're supposed to do. The fact that somebody else is being disobedient doesn't remove me from my responsibility to be obedient to what the Lord has said to me, right? And so the fact there that the husband is not obeying the word makes it all the more important that his wife does obey the word. Now, it gives some examples of how a, how a woman can have that chaste conversation. It says in verse 3, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Another another mistake sometimes that women will make is putting too much emphasis on the outward. Okay, and it's true that that you know men are attracted to outward appearance, but that's a very shallow type thing. And here, what it's saying is that that uh, rather than putting all of the emphasis on the outward, how, you know, how the hair is done and the, the jewelry and all of that, to put emphasis on the inward, to have that, that uh, ornament, it calls it an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.